0: This is the What Now Podcast.
1: I learned from watching closely. I watched people in famous situations and I saw how fame was a thief and it was a robber. It stole accountability. It, like, it let people off the hook. And so I was constantly aware of trying to be aware of where fame and fortune could possibly cause me grief.
0: This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the stigma that surrounds cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints in a respectful, open, and honest way in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Steve Young, two time NFL MVP, Super Bowl MVP, and first ballot Hall of Famer, about his journey with acute separation anxiety, which stemmed from his childhood and followed him into adulthood where he was diagnosed at the age of 33. Steve talks about how he stayed spiritually grounded as he achieved fame and fortune. Steve also talks about his direct experience with the stigma that surrounds not going on a mission and getting married later in life, and is committed to reducing the cultural stigma that exists in our church in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing. I'm here today with Steve Young. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Mary Alice. Nice to be with you been a long time since we saw each other in person, but old friends, families, together.
0: I know. Very old family friends. It's wonderful. I'm so glad you've been willing to join us on the podcast. My pleasure. So I'd first like to just start by inviting you to share just a little bit about yourself. Most people know who you are, but... For those in the church who don't follow sports or football or might not know who you are, I'd love you to just share a little bit about yourself, where you're from and where you went to school, a little bit about your career. Would you mind doing that?
1: bet. So I was born in Salt Lake City. My dad was at the University of Utah Law School at the time, and so we were in student housing, so I always joke with all my University of Utah friends that I was actually born on campus, spent the first four or five years of my life in student housing with my dad in law school. We moved to New York, just outside of New York sorry, in Greenwich, Connecticut, when I was eight years old. And so essentially my formative years were at Greenwich High School in Greenwich, Connecticut. And graduated from there. And I was a really good student and had a lot of offers from going to Ivy League schools. I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, but I was felt much more comfortable being at BYU and not only that it was a chance to play football, which I did and I ended up being All-American at BYU and playing quarterback, and then went to the pro football and played for 18 years, 16 in the NFL, and whoever thought that was possible, and that's a whole other...
0: whole another podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. I have probably 17 podcasts, Mary Alice, that we could do together on different subjects, but okay, great. we'll try to stay focused here. <laughs> And then at the end of my career, I got married to the late Barb Graham. I'm not late, but that was her maiden name, so Barb Graham. And she, we met on a blind date in Phoenix. And we've had four kids, beautiful, wonderful kids. Brayden, who's now a sophomore at Manhattan School of Music, studying music theater. My junior, for Jackson, going into senior year in high school. And then a ninth grader going to ninth grade, my little summer. And Lila is our youngest, going into sixth grade. And so we're in the thick of kids, which is the best time of life. And I just so love that it's, I didn't mean for it to be later in my life or later than usual, but like you're going to get into Mary Alice, there's so many things that, I mean, anyone that had something happen to them in the church, around the church, by the church, through experiences that they had in life, fame and for I mean, there's just like, I tell everyone, look, somewhere along the line, I've experienced those footsteps that you see in the snow ahead of you are mine, like, (laughs) or in the sand or wherever else you look, wherever you're walking, the footsteps you see, they're mine. I travel the road. I feel like I've been through a lot. And so it's fun to be giving back and love what you're doing and really super focused on trying to get. We have a terrible situation with young adults in the church as far as activity and Hear it from every corner, and it's data driven, a lot of it on the issues that we have return missionaries and new converts worldwide. So, we've got to do a better job of stripping away what is cultural and really focusing on what is vital for our discipleship. So, I'm grateful to jump on here and give you my two cents.
0: Absolutely. I completely agree with your last statement. We have incredible doctrine in our church. We have incredible leaders in our church, but we have a culture that sometimes can be hurtful to different members in our community. So we're going to jump in and talk about that today, these different stigmas. and We're going to address a couple that have happened in your life, and I love that you're talking about the footsteps because you are so relatable in (laughs) many ways because you've gone through a lot of hard things.
1: Yeah. One of my secrets to success, and I tell my kids or anyone else is learn to do hard things and go through it, don't go around it. And so luckily, my response for when I'm in a hard situation is to kind of grind through it. And I'm really grateful for that. I don't know whether it's my parents, whether it's just innate in me, whether I'm just lucky. I don't know. But I've tended to kind of just not give in.
0: You know? Yeah, power through.
1: And it's been an amazing ride. Whether it's The anxiety I felt as a kid or I was afraid to sleep over at other kids' houses when I was in grade school. And I mean, I was a straight-A student and an athlete. During the day, I was Superman. But at nighttime, I had to be home. My parents needed to be there. And if they tried to leave on a trip or a friend wanted me to come overnight or a scout camp or something else, there's just no way I was leaving home. When I was 33 years old, when I finally was diagnosed with pretty severe undiagnosed childhood separation anxiety. And so that's just the beginning. And we're off. (laughs) And we're off. Okay, so here we go. Let's go. The first question. Come on.
0: You're out of the gate, Steve. Well, first of all, I loved your autobiography that you co-wrote with Jeff Benedict. QB, My Life Behind the Spiral. That gave me a lot of insight into you. And I've known you for several years, but I didn't know a lot of those things about you. So I loved how you were so transparent. That you were
1: anxious? Yeah. Mariela, that book was born out of my children coming back from grade school with stories that weren't true about, you know, I heard that you'd punched Joe Montana in the face and just stupid things that just weren't true. Or And I just got tired and I realized, oh my gosh, if I don't write down what my truth is to my children, it'll be lost. Because there are other people will create what's true to them but wasn't true to me. And so that's why the book's written. The book is completely open because it's to my kids. I did not intend to publish it, but that's another long story about how I got published. But it is really just me speaking to my children what my story is.
0: But you speaking your truth and not hiding behind the persona that you have as a famous figure in the sports world, it would be easy to do that because football people are tough people, right? (laughs) So that's probably why you lasted 16 years in the NFL, You can power through things. You don't go around them. You plow through them. And that's a good mindset for football. But in life, we have to power through some hard stuff. And anxiety is definitely real. I just want to start with your early years at BYU. I appreciate how transparent you were about that and your decision to not go on a mission. And how you were empowered to do the right thing for yourself and not go. That's tough.
1: It was. I put my papers in. And it was during that first semester of school. I had gone to b y u in many ways. I chose b y u because of the comfort I knew that I could possibly pull it off. i didn't unpack my bags the first semester of school, and the transition from home and getting on that plane and going to Utah and going away and being away was probably contextually the most difficult thing I ever did now there's plenty of tough things i've done in my life, but In the moment, the most tough situation was leaving home. And I remember I had family. I had my uncle and my aunt. I had dear friends that kind of surrounded me. I was at BYU. There was a lot of things that make it comfortable. But it was death-defying in my mind to try to survive staying there, playing football, going to school, some of the basic things that people do. And so I put my papers in. And that Christmas, I had gone home to have the bishop's interview and so early in that Christmas break, I told my dad, and I had, not remember, I have no idea I have this anxiety. I knew that I was different. I knew that what I felt was odd, and I saw my other teammates and how they responded to the pressure of the game, the pre-games, and the lead-up to the games, and they were always laughing and having fun, and I always had this sick feeling in my stomach and wanted to throw up, and many times did, and how much I felt differently than they did, and I knew that I was different. I just didn't know why. And I didn't really think about it that much. I just, okay, moved on. And in my heart, with what i had just gone through to going to school, to get on a plane to Bolivia or to Italy or to Texas or wherever, I knew what I had just gone through my freshman year that I would collapse. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to collapse. I wanted to move forward. I'd found that I could go to school and be away from home, and I could survive it. And I had developed a new home. And so my instinct told me, you know what? as worthy as I am, I got to pull the plug on it right now. And so I told my dad and he was great. He said, look, you got to do what you feel and, and I'm support you. And my dad was really cool. He goes, Steve, it really is. Are you worthy to go? Do you have a desire to go? And he, yeah. Well, then that's it. That's it. Oh, I love that distinction. And I said, and the rest of it is just kind of picking the right place. And I know that Gary Crittenden, my friend who's now running the missionary program for the church, is trying to figure out a way so that anyone who has a desire, they'll figure it out a way to serve. So you can stay home. But You live at home if that's the issue that you have or whatever it is. They're trying to make it so that you can serve a mission if that's what you want to do. And so anyway, he says, you got to go tell the bishop. And I said, yeah, I know. I didn't look forward to that. I drove up and Kay Rasmussen was the bishop. He had girls, I think four girls, and he was not athletic. He was not athlete, athletics was not his thing at all. But we were friends and I really admired him and thought he was great. And I told him, I said, listen, I know my papers are in, but I just think it's best if, the way I described it to him, I think it's just best that I go back to school. And he stopped and kind of looked off and he said, you know, Steve, it's interesting. I was at a sacrament meeting this fall and I was just sitting there and kind of daydreaming and so I had this experience where I was told that you were going to come tell me this. And I was, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, whoa. You can imagine as a kid, this is very emotional, traumatic feelings that you have about what you're telling this person, their response, you don't know what their response is going to be, but their response right. is that they had some spiritual experience <laughs> that told them that you were going to come and say this to them. Now, that's incredible. That is so unusual. I remember just tears just rolled down my cheeks. I just couldn't believe that God was paying attention to me. I just felt like, my gosh. And he said, I'm here to tell you that this is right and you're supposed to go back to school. And so typical with my life, that's just the beginning. I mean, and we're off. Like, it's just, honestly, it's one of thousands of things that have happened. But looking back and having me go through that again, it really brings a tear to my eye again, Marias, because I just am so grateful for the,
0: the right peace that
1: came, the right? right? <laughs> yeah. And that's not always the case. And we know the shame that is put on kids. And oh yeah, look, going on a mission is a great thing. It's a great thing. There's nothing bad about it. But... There's a checklist. And when we when obedience how do I put this? We've got to be super careful because the checklist is actually needs to be thrown away. There should be no checklist. There should be opportunities and righteous desires and move forward. And what's collected along the way is a good thing because this feel interestingly enough as we found out in my mom's side of the family, there's sprinkled throughout our family this separation anxiety. And it comes out in different forms and different ways. But my uncle, my mom's brother, his kids, my sister, my aunt's a kid. I mean, it's just sprinkled around. In my kids, it's sprinkled around. And there's two or three that tried to go on missions and got to the MTC. And you talk about grit. People have no idea the grit that it takes To have this going on in your DNA and yet stay in there and grind it out day after day, month after month, you have to tip your cap. And so here's these kids, the grittiest kids in the world, going through this and then finally just collapsing. And I think the church is getting much better. The MTC is really good at spotting this and really helping kids, but we're not good at receiving these kids back. Yes, that's true. We are terrible at receiving these kids back, whatever the situation is. I don't care if it's something you didn't work out or get, I don't care. The grit that it took to go in this environment, in this day, I mean, I'm going to put my papers, I'm going to go on a mission. Like, we need to revel in the grit of these kids that are going on missions and whether they come home early or not, honestly, it has to be a revered. I feel like, because I'm so sensitive to this in issue, the kids that i know that have this issue and i watch them grind through life and never and go through it i've been around some remarkable strong and will strong-willed people who have done some amazing things in life but i don't think that they have anything on these kids that have faced this inner kind of challenge and have done it in such a gritty way And my two cousins who came home, I just reveled in their strength. Couldn't believe that they've made it that long.
0: Well, that's true. It's real. Like, I admire that you knew yourself well enough to not go on a mission knowing the anxiety that you would experience. I respect your honesty about your feelings with that. You know, many kids go on missions who have severe anxiety And due to the cultural pressure, they go, and they shouldn't be going. And they live with the stigma when they come home early. It's like they can't win.
1: Yeah, no, they can't win. What advice
0: would you give to these
1: kids? Amongst many things, you know, when President Nelson said, buckle your seatbelts, one of the things that's going to get better is this. It's going to get better. The missionary program is going to get better, and they're going to handle it better. But regardless of whether the missionary program handles it better, we as Latter-day Saints have to handle it better. We have got to quit the shaming. And I can't tell you how much pain for shaming for kids that get into sexual sins or they get into something goes wrong and then they're off track and they're shamed. And that shaming never, I've seen it now. I've lived a lifetime and I've seen that shaming affect their lives for their entire life. Oh, for sure. It drives them right out of the church. We do a terrible, this is a bigger film, maybe a longer conversation, but if nothing else, as Latter-day Saints, we should be healers. To be a saint is to be a healer, to extend the atonement to every individual in our influence, in our sphere of existence. And so if we're not doing that, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. And we have these safety measures, these things that I understand that. But we can't use it as a weapon against people. We have got to recognize Christ won. He's already won. We have just got to come down here and learn. And if somebody's struggling to learn, help them learn. I mean, I don't know. This is a bigger issue, but it certainly comes out in this issue because I see it all the time, more and more of the shaming, and it's just a terrible thing. We all got to work on it. We all got to watch how we do it and how we speak and how we act because we have a checklist. We know when we're—that's the problem. Is It's like we got to watch out for our Boy Scout theology because the Boy Scout theology says, I earn my merit badge and I get my Eagle Scout. And if we think about church that way, that is a dangerous way. It's not bad. It's just that it does it. it's checklisty rather than healing, extending atonement, Christ-like love. Like it's just those things. You know, you got to be careful. So people say, "What about the kids that go? We should celebrate them and we should honor them." We got to recognize that nothing's taken away. We don't take away from successful missions by honoring and not shaming people who don't get it done and go through the full. And so it's okay. We've got to be super careful here because I guess I've lived long enough that I see the damage of the shaming that we do to each other. And interesting, super successful people that I know, super successful, famous people who've accomplished great things, carry the shame and it doesn't go away. And it's like, Oh, I just hate that. I hate that we've created a culture that could do that. So we got to be careful.
0: Well, that's the point of this podcast is to kind of break it down, right? Like we're all real people. We're all humans. You know, we're all going to go through different challenges in this life. And the last thing we all need is judgment from other people who don't understand our perspective, right?
1: Well, Mary Alice, we have the, I just always say the rootedness that we have. Joseph Smith, the stings rattling around in his mind in 1820 among a lot of people at that time. And then he started this church, and when he came out of the grove, what did he bring forward? And one thing is is that we are a human family that existed before we were together. We were a family. We're amongst each other, and we're not taking bodies and coming to mortality because of a flawed system or something that's broken. Christ didn't come to fix a broken system. No, it's all been—it's like our theology is a beautiful theology that says that we're here to be educated collectively, and the best way to be educated is to help others. And that way you get that full virtual cycle that you, that's how you learn the best. And so we have this beautiful theology. I'm gonna take the responsibility myself that I don't practice nearly enough and that we all don't practice. We have the rootedness to do this right. And we end up in a kind of a Law of Moses kind of culture when we're just doing things, looking for credit. I said Boy Scout theology, looking for the merit badge, and we're missing the point. And I say that to myself as much as I say that to anybody else. So this is not, we're not talking to try to shame anybody. We're talking to kind of elevate the conversation to see if we can all do better.
0: Absolutely. And you know what, there are a lot of ways you can be a missionary. So you have been in a unique situation where your success has allowed you to reach more people than you probably would have reached on a traditional mission. And I believe the Lord uses people to serve in whatever capacity they are willing to offer. So how have you seen the Lord use you to accomplish this yeah. work? You're a visible person.
1: Yeah, I didn't ever say, oh, this is a better choice. I didn't say, oh, I can influence more people. At the time, when I walked into the bishop's office and had that conversation with him, I was the eighth string quarterback. I mean, there wasn't like, oh, he's going to be a famous football player. <laughs> I mean, now, see, it was not even close I to think that. most
0: people don't know that.
1: No, no. I went back to school because of how I was feeling about my anxiety. I did not go back to school because I was going to be a famous football player. But the challenge that he gave me at that time was to be on the Lord's errand. Like, that's what your life is about. And I tell missionaries today whether you're a missionary, there were some missionaries that were paused during COVID and they were stuck at home, and we were trying to keep them incented and how to think about it. And I said, Look, whether you're on your mission at home in a pause or whether you're just living your life, you're asked to do the same thing. And that is to extend the atonement to every human being so that Christ can be in the middle of every relationship. And that's what you're doing as a missionary. That's what we're supposed to be doing as human beings. So the call in many ways, is the same and always will be the same. And missions provide an incredible opportunity to kind of be super focused and a great place to kind of learn and grow. But I never made it. I didn't make a deal with God at that time. I didn't say, oh, okay, you let me off the hook here, so I've got to be on the hook there. I just knew that I had a responsibility to learn to live my religion, and I was just going to keep doing that and take it as it came. I
0: love what your bishop had said to you, and this is a quote from your book. He just said, you know, serve Jesus, live your religion, and be a great example. And isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing in general as members of the Church (laughs) of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints?
1: It's actually pretty easy if you think about it, you know.
0: Yeah, and I just think you're in a unique position being a professional athlete here because the environment of a professional athlete isn't usually the most moral And as a single and successful athlete, I mean, you won a Super Bowl as a single guy with tons of attention. How did you stay grounded spiritually and personally? That's a tough environment.
1: Well, I think, again, I didn't understand what this kind of separation anxiety was as a kid and how it was kind of part of my genetics and my mom's side of the family. That's all new news as of when I was three or 34 years old. When you're describing my 20s, there's a humility with anxiety. (laughs) There's a challenges that are in front of me. I was very serious about. I was asked to. I followed Jim McMahon, BYU. He was 72 NCA records. Then it was my turn, and then I followed Joe Montana and his four Super Bowls. And so, I was about pretty serious business and doing kind of really hard things. And I just always remembered, even to this day, living religion is really just it's mine, my spiritual core. It's mine, and I want to own it. And whenever I get in a jam or something's hard, I go, live your religion. What is your religion? It's long-suffering, gentle persuasion, love, unfeigned, and meekness. So like, lay that on top of whatever situation you're in, and you can figure out what the next move is. And I was pretty serious about fidelity and some of the things that are really kind of known when you get fame and fortune. I learned from watching closely. I watched people in famous situations and I saw how fame was a thief and it was a robber. It stole accountability. It, like, it let people off the hook. And we love that, right? As humans, like, wouldn't that be great to not be accountable and I can just not be on the hook and I can just be kind of roam free. But in the end, it's such a thief for some of the cool things that you want to try to accomplish in your life. And so I was constantly aware of trying to be aware of where fame and fortune could possibly cause me grief. Because I guess in my life, because I've always tried to, I think the anxiety created a sense that there was like always boogeymen waiting for me. I was pretty humble about what was around the next corner. So I was super careful. But I was also rooted in kind of fundamental why. Why would I want fidelity in my life? And there was kind of a sense that I was building for kind of this long-term relationship that was can be super important. And it was like a purpose. It was purposeful. Again, I think from a young age, I wasn't checking boxes in my head. I remember my seminary teacher was Geraldine Edwards. She had 13 kids. She's the most amazing human being. She was an artist. She was an author. And I remember learning a seminary about fidelity and why it was important. Once it was important, it doesn't become less important when you're famous. It doesn't become less valuable. And I think because it wasn't something that I was told that I just had to do, Hey, just do that. Don't ask questions. It was more of a principle, more of a purposeful way to live. I think it helped me make better decisions.
0: Well, I mean, because you are a great example and people who know you know what you believe in. I mean, you really are an incredible example and figurehead for the church in many ways because you really did live it and you owned it and you were a great example of what we believe is a church It influences people. We all have that opportunity as independent members of the church, but I think as a famous person, you're kind of put on a pedestal a little bit more. and Maybe there's a little more pressure to do that, but I think you're right. I think sometimes people feel like they're famous and the rules don't apply to them anymore. Well,
1: they don't, and that's the problem. Fame is a thief. That's why I say that. Yeah. I look at it that way because it can be relieving that you're off the hook, but in the long run, I guess I was always about the idea that we're here to really kind of see how good we could get. I had many experiences where that was the theme, like Steve, why you're doing this. You know why. Because we want to see how good we can get. Like, how good can you get? That's a risk. I'm not sure I want to find out. But also, that's kind of part of Latter-day Saint theology is that we're trying to here to just to grow. And I knew that fame and fortune, are thieves, they keep you from growing. They keep you from that sense of accountability. So I was super aware of that and I watched it and I had great people around me that reminded me of that. And look, I'm not some expert, but I just know that being grounded in principles is super important because then you have a purpose. I mean, having a a purpose in the middle of chaos, having a purpose is super important.
0: That is a really important point you just made there. Having a purpose and focusing on it and not letting that get taken away from you, that thief. I like what you're saying too about having people around you that are strong supporters that back you up if your teammates can do that for you. But if you're trying to be this spiritual, humble, non-worldly person, you have to have certain people in your life that ground you and are there for you no matter what. I know a couple of your dear friends, my uncle, I know you lived with him for a little bit. You mentioned that in your book, who is the best man on this planet. Yep. And Greg Madsen, a dear friend of ours, too. I mean, you have to have these people in your life who you can trust implicitly and know that they are there for you. I think anyone, famous or not, needs that in their life. What kind of influence did that have on you?
1: You mentioned, I mean, I feel like I've had 15, 20, 30 sets of parents, right? Or advisors or people scouting for me, watching for trouble, pushing me back. And little angels so, you know, that are pushing me back to the right, kind of re-guiding me. And I think that every time I turn in need, I, I seem to run into something or somebody. And I looked for guidance in and out of the church. My two best friends of the 49ers, John Frank and Harris Barton, both Jewish guys, the only two Jewish guys in the whole NFL were both living together with me. <laughs> and we had great. a great time and they were great sources of just inspiration and People put up with me. I was super serious. I had all these serious things that I was trying to handle that didn't feel like it was like. Um, I remember my dad, I'd get in these tough times with football and all this anxiety. And then I'd just get into a knot in my stomach and I couldn't hardly handle it. And i call home and, Dad, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to make it. And I'm like, Steve, you're making a million dollars playing football. It's my dream. Like, what's the yeah. problem? <laughs> See- What is the problem? And so the truth of the matter is I needed a lot of people who would just listen to me and let me talk it out. And there's a lot of patient human beings looking back on my life that were willing to just... Brent Jones was my roommate for 14 years at the 49ers. And honestly, you talk about a calling. I mean, he had three kids and married and, and we had a family. And I think I was his third child. I mean, he had two kids and a third child. Like, I was the one that needed all this time and attention, especially around the game time and walking around the malls in Atlanta and New Orleans and just talking it out. Like I was not an easy guy to hang around with. And all these guys were willing to be my angels in living form to kind of help me get through it. And what the strange thing is, I was super successful. Like you think of all that, that I would be terrible at this. Yeah. But it really was a driving force to kind of amazing success.
0: I love how you refer to them as your living angels. That's really beautiful. Like the Lord places people in our lives at certain times to guide us and help us. And I'd just be interested to know, so you said you were diagnosed with this anxiety at 33. How did you get to the point where you knew you needed help and you sought the help that you needed?
1: Oh, Mary Ellen. Okay, so I played professionally for almost 10 years. And I played for four years at BYU. And my college roommates talk to me and remind me what a wreck I was before games and starting about Wednesday or Thursday. And I still can't watch cartoons, traditional cartoons, as you think about them back in the day, because that was Saturday morning before the game. All my friends would be watching TV. And I just it's almost PTSD. Like, I don't want to remember those moments I throw up before every game. And that was in college, let alone in the pros. And so the pros were heightened, right? Everything was harder. Everything was more intense. Now you're getting paid. These are all these adult men that are around, these grizzled old guys, tough, tough environment. High expectations. High expectations, huge expectations. And so all that kind of created an incredible opportunity because I really do think it's an opportunity regardless of how you get there. It's an opportunity to see how good you could get. And that was kind of what I was about look, if you want to see how good you can get, let's replace Joe Montana. Why not? Like, that's not a bad situation. (laughs) That's a goal. That's a goal, right? And so in many ways, I was drawn to it despite the rigor. And so what happened is I'd get into it and I'd perform. And when it was going well, I could get kind of a good pace going. But when it didn't, in one year, I replaced Joe Montana and we were struggling. And honestly, everywhere you turned. It was so intense. You had to live in the Bay at the time, but Joe Montana and Steve Young was the story. It was the lead story. It was the biggest thing going on. And when I was playing and I wasn't doing as well as Joe, it was everywhere. I could be at Drager's checking out for groceries and the guy at the front would be talking to the lady. Oh yeah, Steve Young, he sucks. He's terrible. I know it's horrible. And I turn on the radio and I go, okay, I'll listen to easy listening. That'll be safe. You know, Barry Manilow, let's just listen to music and the guy would after <laughs> Barry Manilow would be finish his song and like, Hey, by the way, Steve Young sucks. He's terrible isn't he? and me. And you're like, Oh my gosh, it was just everywhere. It was everywhere. And it felt like it was in the new It was every pulse. Every moment of my life was just a further and so it got to a point where, for the first time in my life, I wasn't sleeping. And it was before a game, and I didn't sleep on Thursday night, and then I didn't sleep on Friday night. And it, it had gotten so that I couldn't, ha- like, it got beyond my handling. I couldn't just grit it out. It was like beyond me. I didn't know what to do. And so, some dear friends, Keith and Downey Merrill, and Merrill family, they were so great, and other angels in my life. And I made a promise. Then Saturday, I told the team I wasn't going to go to the meetings. I was sick and didn't sleep really on Saturday. I've been up for 72, 90 hours. And I went to play the Atlanta Falcons. I promised them, I said, look, if we win, I'll talk to the team doctor because something's not right. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? It took all that to finally realize that something's not right? But that's where it was. But I'd only do it if we won. Because if we won, then you don't have an excuse. If we lost, you can't go to the team doctor and say, Oh, I lost, and now I have an excuse. It was just, that was part of my mantra. So, shorten this story down a little bit. We won the game. I played pretty well, which is an amazing story on its own, right? Because I hadn't slept for so long. And I went to the team doctor, Jim Clint. We called him Reggie. And he'd been around from the beginning. He'd been through all the Super Bowls. He was one of the original guys. And I really respected him, but he was also somebody I didn't laugh with. It wasn't like a dear friend. It was just somebody I really just. Not afraid of but very respectful of. And it was after the game in the back corner of the training room in the forty nine at the candlestick park and I was getting the ice on my shoulder and I remember thinking, I told the Marils, I told him I'd tell him. So I said, Reggie, can I talk to you for a minute? He came over and I kinda of took him in the corner back and away from everybody and I just in my towel and my ice pack and I said, Look, something's not right and I kind of tried to explain to him how I was feeling, what was going on. And I noticed we were nose to nose, you know, because it was really close quartered back there. I just wanted to have this little conversation with him. And and I could see as I was talking that a big tear came out of his eyeball. Like, it was the weirdest thing. I remember this big ball of tear and then dropped off of his cheek. And I was like, what? Reggie, are you, are you crying? And he stopped in tears. He told me how he had basically just gritted fingernails on the edge of the building through med school and had this issue with anxiety. He said, Steve, you grew up with childhood separation anxiety and you've never dealt with it. Wow. He identified it right there. And I go, I did not know that. And he goes, so the next day I was up with a child psychologist, psychiatrist meeting on Monday, and he gave me 10 questions. And if you say yes to six of them, He diagnosed, she was adult undiagnosed childhood separation anxiety. And so I said yes to nine of them. And then the only 10th one was because I couldn't answer it. I didn't know anything about, I wasn't a nightmare person. So I didn't have nightmares. So, but he said, Steve, I've never seen this before. 33 years old, successful, whatever. And with such severe undiagnosed childhood separation anxiety. And so that was the beginning of at least the recognition of what was going on in my life. That was a big part of it. Now, it doesn't, didn't own me because there's another part of me that was super aggressive, super achieving, super accomplished, you know, like other parts of me. This was not the part that I really focused on, but it was the part that showed up under the most duress, of course, or big changes in my life that I had to start to deal with. And so I don't want people to think that this part of me owned me. It didn't. But I can tell you that some of the best things I've ever done in my life were because of this. And so when people say, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have that? I would say, I don't know. It's tough. But some of the best things that ever happened were because of the intensity and the alert. I was in my head a lot. I was very aware. I was very focused on the people. I mean, there's a lot of positives. And now you just got to get rid of the negatives. And that was what the quest from 33 on was the quest to find the positives in it and accentuate those and start to deal with some of the negatives. The number (laughs) one thing was six or seven years later was to retire from football. That was the best thing I ever did. (laughs) Really? Life got a lot less anxiety. I told my wife when I got married and we quit, I quit. And I said, my gosh, my heartbeat doesn't give about 14. This is great.
0: (laughs) Seriously, talk about professional sports, so visible. And then you win a Super Bowl and then the pressure is on to keep winning. Sure. You know what I mean? That is tough. And I don't think a lot of people can relate to that. I just feel like with your Anxiety. Was it a relief to have someone empathize directly with you, and that he felt that way? I mean, another tender mercy in your life. Yeah. You, that the man you go to. Can
1: you imagine? The
0: same thing, and identified immediately.
1: Yeah, well, I would amazing. have thought he would just tell me to what's your problem, like other people had done. But to have him immediately be aware of it, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I could have gone a lot of different directions. And I think in that way, you're right, Mary It's a beautiful story of people loving human beings that didn't shame me and listen. And the power in that, the power of that voice at that time in my life could be no more powerful other than if God spoke to me. Like there's no more powerful voice than someone who's in that moment with you at that key sensitive, vulnerable moment. And can give you that, carry the atonement forward, like pay it forward and give someone some peace and some healing. It's nothing greater. And I found it with members of the church and non-members of the church. And it's just people that think about it in a healing way. I'm so grateful.
0: Yeah, and placed in your life at the right time. Timing is everything. Amazing. It really is. At this stage in your life, what are you most grateful for? You said you were kind of relieved to step away from football, even though you had a fantastic career and a long career. Most people don't stay in football that long.
1: It had gotten to a point where it never got easy. And I think emotionally, I'd kind of run the, it took such a toll and getting married and starting family, that toll you could see as like, I don't want to Barb always says I should have kept playing. Maybe looking back, I could have for a couple more years with her. But my sense is I didn't want to burn. I mean, it's like, look, like my dad said, Steve, what else do you want to do? Is there something you haven't done in football? Is there something you haven't accomplished? Like you need 19 years instead of 18? You know, I remember when he said that to me, I was like, yeah, maybe that's enough. And so it was time to move on.
0: And embrace your family.
1: Yeah. It's been a beautiful thing because It's really hard to get my heartbeat up above 50. People say, what do you think about anxiety? I go, I don't know. I haven't felt it in 25 years.
0: (laughs) That's interesting.
1: But maybe that's because the searing effect of going through it maybe changes you a little bit. I can't say that I don't worry a lot and concern for my kids and worry about their well-being and the complexity of family. I mean, there's all that, but there's nothing like being in the newspaper (laughs) and people berating you every way, every direction. It's definitely a unique experience. Yeah,
0: that is definitely one of the downsides, probably, of the fame is just that you are so visible and it's so easy for people to speak about, especially in San Francisco, where you had such a long career there. And then you do a couple games wrong and everyone's against you. You're like, where's the loyalty? <laughs> Wait a second.
1: <laughs> it's life. But
0: at this stage, you have a beautiful family. You said you have four kids, you're married to Barb, and you got married later in life. I can't imagine that was easy being, were you 36 when you got married?
1: 37. No, I might have been, oh my gosh, was I 38? I don't know, Mary Alice, it all runs together, but we'll say 37 just as average.
0: Okay. So 37 in our church culture.
1: Yeah, that's right. 20 years. We just were married 20 years this year. That's right.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, it's hard enough if you're not famous in this church culture, if you're that old and not married, and then you compound it with being a major celebrity and a wealthy individual (laughs) and a good looking guy and a nice guy. You just worry everyone's after you for the wrong reasons. So it's great that you're able to meet Barb and establish your family. And I love this quote that's in your book. You say, she wasn't just a gorgeous woman. She was independent and had a strong work ethic. She also had serious views about religion, politics, and a wide range of social issues. There was so much to talk about, but the one thing I really liked was that she knew very little about football. (laughs) She never watched it. Right. In other words, it meant nothing to her
1: that I was a famous flair. That's a funny story. So we're dating. I and love that. She went through one season with me. And so she started to learn the game. And she goes, oh, first and 10. Because she was a cheerleader in high school. She goes, we used to go first and 10. But I never knew what that meant. Now I finally learned what it was. <laughs> so I thought that was a funny reference to the like irony. people. The like, yeah, irony of it all. But listen, Barb, the conversations from our first date were serious conversations about life. And I love that. She is reflexively non-judgmental, and especially with issues around marginalized people, she has a place for LGBTQ community, for women, and I tell her all this all the time. My devotion to those fundamental principles of what Joseph Smith brought forward and restored gospel and what we're here to do and why we're here and who we're here to do it with and nature of God and the nature of Christ's mission. And the fall was not a mistake and incredible faith it took for every spirit to take a body. And like we're all have faith in our rootedness. That's in our theology. And I think that my intense love for that is in, has been heightened because around her, I always tell her she's great at power washing the cultural barnacles off of your ship like you just there's, <laughs> that's great imagery i always talk about like she forces you to say do i need that is that important why is this vital it's kind of like that idea of putting everything in the parking lot and nothing comes back in that is not vital and important and precious and in that way i've been able to build what i have this this precious faith that i'm grateful for because i was as much a cultural being as anybody all of us as Latter-day saints that we have this incredible wonderful culture in many ways but also what is it on our spiritual ship that we have to have and the things that we do not have to have let's maybe throw them overboard because we really need to be focused on those vital few things that really make the difference and so i'm really grateful to her
0: Absolutely. Power wash those barnacles off the boat. I like it.
1: <laughs> these are not the, they metaphors, but sometimes it's that it feels kind of true, like it actually happens.
0: <laughs> totally. So I just love everything we've discussed and it's been powerful. And we have a good message here about just the importance of valuing our culture and our doctrine, but also trying to change these things in the culture that can be hurtful. So. Your comments were powerful today, and I appreciate your contribution. Thank you so much.
1: You're wonderful. Thanks for doing this. And as I mentioned, we have something very beautiful, and let's make sure that we accentuate the things. And that's why even with church history, all the challenges that people have, we can own it. We can own things that happen that were bad, things that happen that were wrong, things that were big mistakes. Like, we're big enough. We don't need to hide from them. We don't need to run from them. We don't need to just own them. Own them as good people making Tragic mis- mistakes. It's okay. Just like me, good person making tragic mistakes. It's like, let's own them, let's fix them, and let's be better. And I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast, and I'm grateful if you have me on.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We encourage you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Simply click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. We read all your comments and it really helps us to grow. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter by searching Podcast What Now. We never say goodbye, we say what now. Find out by tuning into our next podcast. This has been a What Now Podcast production.